Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome, everyone, to the final day of Sleep Medicine Board Review. So let's finish off talking about some sleep-related movement disorders. So let's talk about this 56-year-old woman is evaluated for a six-month history of nocturnal leg movements. According to her husband, she frequently kicks her legs during sleep but does not exhibit vocalizations or complex movements while asleep. The patient is unaware of these movements and has not had any uh, sensory discomfort or urge to move the legs. She snores at night, but has no sudden loss of muscle tone, sleep attacks, or excessive daytime sleepiness. Results of a physical exam in labs are unremarkable. PSG shows good sleep efficiency, a low apnea hypopnea index, absence of motor activity during REM sleep, no sleep fragmentation is evident. Despite frequent leg movements, a video recording of her movements reveals slow flexion movements of the ankles, knees, and hips that repeats every 20 seconds in a stereotypic manner. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in the management of this patient? And Sahar, since you're with us, help us out on this one. This is a confusing one. They're talking about frontal lobe epilepsy, right? So, I mean, are they talking about is that is that your diagnosis? Well, they're stereotypical. They happen frequently, right? I mean, it looks like there is a recording, and they show some slow flexion of the ankles, knees, and hips. Just the ankles, knees, and hips. Usually, seizures are not stereotypical. It's, it has to be um, like an like actual uh, paras- I'm sorry, parasomnia, but not really stereotypical. It's the frontal lobe epilepsy. Right? All right. Well, where do you want to go with this? Okay, which of the following is most appropriate? Clonazepam, EEG, ferritin, no treatment. Um, so she's she's not really having restless legs to be checking a ferritin. She's not even aware of them, right? During morning time, they don't bother her. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is all her husband, man. Her husband put her under, threw her under the bus. I mean, if, they're, if they're, the fact that they threw the word is stereotypical, it makes me want to do EEG, but also... I just don't want to do much either, but I feel like an EEG is warranted. Like you wouldn't be wrong getting an EEG. Okay. So you're going to go with B on this one. Yeah. The diagnosis here is going to be, this is periodic limb movements. So what are we going to do here? There's no treatment that needs to be necessary. So this is periodic limb movements of sleep. Think of the S mean of sleep, not the disorder. And it's characterized by periodic leg kicking that often exhibits a stereotype flexion repeating periodically during sleep. And this was first called nocturnal myoclonus. And the key thing here is that if there's no disorder here. The best thing to do is just reassurance because this is not periodic limb movement disorder in itself. And when we talk about periodic limb movements, sorry, just keep on going with this. Which of the following statements regarding periodic limb movements of sleep is correct? Is it A, patients generally present with complaints of repetitive leg movements during sleep? Is it B, a POM index of greater than 15 should always be treated? C, prevalence is increased in patients with REM movement disorder, which we just talked about a second ago? Or periodic movements of sleep, hey, just give them a dopamine agonist, you know what I mean? Some Requip or, you know, and it should be okay. Which statement is correct? 
15 is true, but you shouldn't always, you shouldn't treat it if they're not symptomatic. Like PLMI of more than 15 and it's adult is, you know, the cutoff you use, but it shouldn't always be treated if they're not having symptoms. I got your back on that. Keep on going. Generally presents with complaint of repetitive leg movements during sleep. Sure. I mean, but then this is not, if they don't know about it, how do they know? Well, and that's important for all the pulmonary fellows that a patient doesn't come in complaining of limiting to sleep. Like the the vignette, I mean, they always get told on by the the bed partner. So they wouldn't do that. I agree with you. Yeah. So respond to dopamine agonies. And we're not talking about restless legs or anything like that. And we're not talking about the disorder. We're talking yeah. about periodic movements of sleep. So what's Exactly. So prevalence is increasing in patients with REM sleep. Correct. So when you have other parasomnias, such as REM movement disorder, such as people who have like sleepwalking, yes, they tend to have a higher uh, periodic movement of sleep. Good. So when we talk about this, uh, just having these findings is most commonly affecting older individuals, usually greater than six years of age. It's associated with other things, including restless leg, REM movement disorders, narcolepsy, OSAs, and other parasomnias. And the key thing is they can be caused with arousals, but most of the time, patients are just unaware of what's going on. So, Sahar, you have to do this one. You're the only one. Which of the following oh listed below defines an arousal on an EEG that must last at least three seconds and usually seen in the occipital leads to define it that they aroused? Alpha theta. Yeah, you're awesome. It's going to be alpha theta. Boom, you're the best. So, of course, this is going to be for you and particularly with taking sleep boards. This is how we incorporate some of the basics we learned about EEG interpretation and things like arousal. So, arousal from sleep, you need to be sleeping for at least 10 seconds before we say it's an arousal. Arousal needs to last at least three seconds. So, what is important here for everyone? Periodic limb movements uh, of sleep versus the disorder. Periodic movements of sleep do not have a consistent relationship with symptoms such as insomnia or excessive time sleepiness. Periodic movements of sleep are generally considered to be an age-related phenomenon, response to arousals, a byproduct of other disorders that I mentioned. Occasionally, they occur with EEG arousals, you know, and if you are having daytime sleepiness, if you're having insomnia, sure, then we could call it disorder, and then you could think about treating the disorder. Well, when we talk about when do I think about it, you know, if someone's getting, you know, working some up for obstructive sleep apnea and their AHI is normal, but their arousal index, meaning the ARI is super high, then wait a minute, something's making them wake up from sleep. Then I would want to look into these periodic limb movements if they're having it. You know, when we talk about periodic limb movement disorder, we definitely think about it for treating in children greater than five, PLM index of five, and adults greater than 15 if it's a disorder. And here's going to be some of the memorized criteria that we need to know when we're scoring a periodic limb movement, that they need to have four of these periodic limb movements in a row to call the series. They got to be separated by at least 0.5 to 90 seconds in duration, and each episode has a certain duration to it. And how do we treat periodic limb disorder? Very similar to restless leg syndrome, but the medications that I'm going to mention coming up haven't really been, are not FDA approved for this. And there really is no specific therapy for periodic limb movements of sleep. It's just reassurance. All right, let's pass the baton, uh, Sahar, to someone. Who wants, uh, who, who do you want to give it to? There are not that many people on the call, so whoever hasn't gone yet. All right, someone just speak up, whoever is not there. This 52-year-old woman presents with sleep onset insomnia, which began shortly after the birth of her third child. She has a hard time getting comfortable in bed and frequently thrashes her legs, which gives her some relief, but disturbs her husband. 
Except for migraines, she is healthy. She takes a lipid-lowering agent, probably a statin and some calcium supplement. She rarely drinks alcohol and quit smoking 25 years ago. Her physical exam is normal. Lab results show a creatinine of 1.2, glucose of 99, total cholesterol of uh, 176, hemoglobin of 13.2, and a ferritin of 80. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment at this time? And who, who do we got going to answer this one? B as a boy. B as a boy, Ropinerol. Why did you go with that one? Why not, why not iron replacement? You just don't want to replace your iron or what do you because think? Because I think the cutoff is 75 for the ferritin, right? Yeah. So if it's above 75, then you don't treat. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. I think that answers that. Why not uh, sertraline and why not clonazepam? I don't know, because B just seems more right. Well, There's no great know, logic here. No, I like it. No, a lot of the TCAs, SSRIs, SNRIs, they can make restless leg symptoms kind of worse sometimes, give you more PLMs. Clonazepam, a long, long time ago, we used to knock people out and used to use it, but it's not really FDA approved. So it really comes down to ropinerol and pregabalin. And this is one of those hot questions on the board exams, uh, Anakit. And even though you may think about picking ropinerol, on your boards now, the right answer is pregabalin. So when we talk about why, when we talk about restless leg syndrome, you know, the new American Academy of Sleep Medicine guidelines recommend gabapentinoids like Neurontin, like Illyrica as first-line agents due to one reason. They don't cause something called augmentation. And we can see a lot of augmentation. We use a dopamine agonist, which were historically the first line medication. So this has been kind of a big shift. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the older sleep doctor is not aware of this, but on your boards, it is going to be the gabapentinoids. So Sahar, go back. I need you on this one. Another name for, you know, restless leg syndrome is Ekboom syndrome. You know, we've called that in the 1960s. And I know that restless leg syndrome occurs commonly in people who are iron deficient. You know, and that's what Anakin said, that this patient wasn't, so he didn't want to do it. But there is that association. What is the theoretical association between iron and restless leg syndrome? And you could do this one, or Anakin could do it. It doesn't really bug me. Something about the synthesis of dopamine in the brain. You need it as a cofactor. Tyrosine hydroxylase um, B. Yeah. No, man. Sahar, if I, if, I, if I don't say it enough, you're awesome, dude. Thank you. Totally the correct answer. You know, the, the whole thought process is that there is something called tyrosine hydroxylase. It takes tyrosine and it turns it into amino acid into dopamine. And to do that, you need a cofactor of iron. And that was one of the theories behind why does giving supplemental iron help out people with restless leg syndrome? Very good. So let's talk about restless leg syndrome in itself. There's something called the urge criteria. I kind of put it right here. Urge to move the legs. It actually gets relieved when rest is induced. The discomfort gets better with activity. It happens in the evenings and worse at nights. And you know what? That sensation is hard to describe, especially when you're talking to kids. Terms that patients use to describe restless leg syndrome, I put it all here. Creepy, crawly, pulling, aching, itching, drawing, stretching. You know, all these things are how they describe it. And when we talk about how do we evaluate and diagnose people with restless legs, well, you know, a lot of it's going to be the clinical history. You do not need to do a polysomography to make the diagnosis. There are a lot of supportive criteria that can help make the diagnosis. You know what I mean? Um, hey, if you have a family history of restless legs, there's, a, there's usually a strong connection there. People who get periodic limb movements, if you're getting a PSG for another reason, that can help it out. And once again, I hate to say this, in the olden days, if you responded to a dopamine agonist, 
then that would help make the diagnosis of restless leg syndrome. So maybe if you're taking a board exam and you see these things, I call this supportive criteria to help make the diagnosis of RLS. So primary restless leg syndrome, the cause is definitely unknown, you know, definitely consistent with a family history. It's like an autosomal dominant inheritance. So almost 40% of patients who have primary may have this positive family history. And of course, there are secondary restless legs. And, you know, it's going to be associated with things that I've noticed on our board exams. You know, iron deficiency anemia, end-stage renal disease. RLS is very common in hemodialysis patients. Pregnancy, I could imagine the vignette you're going to get, it's going to be a pregnancy. And people with multiple sclerosis have a strong correlation with restless leg syndrome. And many drugs can make restless syndrome, leg syndrome worse. We mentioned earlier SSRIs, SNRIs. One of that always seems to jump on our boards is metoclopramide. I guess because everyone always writes for Reglan because they want some, you know, gastric motility agent or they're not feeling nauseated. And remember, metoclopramide works on dopamine. You know, it actually inhibits dopamine. That's how it works. So it can make restless leg syndrome worse. And also antihistamines can make restless leg syndrome worse. So please remember those. We're getting closer to the end of the hour. So let's do a couple more. Anakit, uh, do you want to do something or do you want to pass this one to someone? Who hasn't done one? Serena. Serena. All right. I mean, I'm never tired of Serena doing some questions. 54-year-old woman with mild restless leg syndrome has developed depression and has some anxiety. Her primary care physician would like your opinion regarding the choice of antidepressant. It happens, Serena. People with, you know, restless legs, they get a little depressed. What medication would you recommend of the choices right here? Sertraline, fluoxetine, bupropion, a venofaxine. I would guess probably C. Yeah, and I think we kind of went over this in our first question. You know, SSRIs, which are these two over here, SNRIs, they can definitely make it worse. And this is going to be one of the medications that you want to consider for restless legs if they're depressed, which is bupropion. You call that Wellbutrin. We all know that it lowers the seizure threshold. And it also it increases REM sleep, which is also kind of nice. So when we talk about treatment options, this is going to be the take-home slide right here, that the first-line therapy for RLS is what we call these alpha-2 delta ligands, which are going to be also known as the gabapentinoids. You could use things like gabapentin, which is Neurontin. It did not get FDA approval for restless legs, but we use it quite commonly. The one that did get FDA approval is called gabapentin inacrabil, which goes by the brand name Horizont. And the last medication is pregabalin. And there were studies comparing pregabalin to dopamine agonists, and it definitely showed some benefit. And the big thing about all these is that you won't develop what's called augmentation. So when we talk about dopamine agonists, I mean, we use those now if alpha-2 delta ligands are contraindicated. The ones we think about for the boards are pramipexol, which is Mirapex. Remember, this one is renally excreted. Uh, ropinerol, which is requipped, that's hepatically metabolized. There's also something where it's a dopamine agonist patch. It goes by the brand name Nupro. And why would you use a patch? It may help out if you're getting augmentation to have a little dopamine agonist on board. And there is a role for opiates in very severe cases. If they're very refractory, we could think about these. When we think about any of these dopamine agonists, there were some data about they may rarely, rarely, rarely cause some sleep attacks. I've never seen this clinically, but you can make them aware of it. But the big one is compulsive behavior disorders. So if you use any of these, dope, uh, these dopamine agonists and all of a sudden your patient starts going to Vegas, starts betting, starts loving the lottery, spending a lot of money, you always worry about these compulsive behavior disorders. 
And augmentation, we mentioned this already, that, you know, augmentations when you treat RLS with the dopaminergic medications and they start getting their symptoms earlier in the day, it starts happening in the upper extremities, the highest risk of getting augmentations when you use carbidopa, levodopa, that's why we don't commonly use it. And then, you know, the lowest risk is going to be on the patch because it's going to be a low dose that sustains in the body. So, of course, the clues to augmentation, spreading symptoms to other parts of the body earlier in the day. They're telling you to increase their dose more and more. Then you have to, uh, if you're on a dopamine agonist, think about augmentation. And that's why we use the alpha 2 delta ligands instead of dopamine medications to treat RS first line. And of course, when we talk about the iron deficiency anemia, the memorization for your boards, and it gets it appropriately, keep the ferritin above 75. We also look at the transferrin saturation. If it's lower than 20, we would consider also transfusing. Sometimes ferritin is an acute phase reactant. So if you have someone with underlying inflammatory bowel disease or, or lupus or, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, it could be falsely elevated. You know, most patients, we do oral, especially pediatrics, but if they can't take to oral, they have some reason to not absorb oral. We do give IV iron in some cases. And randomized controlled trials show the strongest data for ferric carboxymaltose. That seems to be the one they've used most in trials. And we only have one more question left before we end. 20-year-old man complains of sudden and brief contractions in one of his legs when he's trying to fall asleep. He has been studying for an exam and reports decreased total sleep time over the past two weeks compared to his usual schedule. He denies any unpleasant sensations or pain in his legs. He otherwise is normal and has no other complaints. What is the most likely diagnosis? So this is a patient who, when they're just about to fall asleep, the legs just kind of shock. I'm sure many of us have this. Uh, what is the diagnosis? And we could just yell this out. What is the right answer? Delta. Yeah, this is Delta. This is what we call a sleep start or a hypnic jerk. Many of us have this. You know, it, it's caused because of sleep deprivation. It maybe you're drinking too much caffeine during the day because of stress. You do not need to send them to a neurologist or a psychiatrist. And let me just end off with these last couple of slides. Like these are less known sleep related movements. You just look at those and say WTF. There's called alternating leg movement activity, hypnagogic foot tremor, propero. A spinal myoclonus, an excessive fragmentary myoclonus. Just one slide on each before we say goodbye. This is going to be a, a PSG diagnosis where we talk about alternating leg movements, where you're going to have movement criteria on both the right and leg, left legs. This is a hypnagogic foot tremor where you can just kind of see the foot just kind of just tremor in itself. And what is going to be the purpose of these two is right here. Both are maybe variants of the same phenomenon of a rhythmic movement disorder. They're both very benign PSG findings without clinical manifestations. And in most of these cases, it's not like a periodic limb movement where you'll see the movement. You won't even see the movement itself. These are PSG diagnosis. The take-home message for everyone taking the pulmonary boards, these are always going to be the wrong answers on the board exams. It's alternating leg movements or hypnagogic foot tremor. And the last one I want to mention about is going to be this called this uh, proprio spinal myoclonus, when we talk about that, these are going to be not people confuse it for a hypnic jerk where you're just kind of moving it. It's not like that. It's a sudden jerk of like the abdomen and trunk. You're almost like jackknifing. And, you know, and it's something where when you do this uh, by itself, you can have this that really happens based upon sleep onset. There's really nothing much to do. But sometimes if it happens during the day, it can be associated with other neurological disorders. And therefore, it needs to have a further workup. And 
This is also one of the things that, unless they use the buzzwords, they're jackknifing, sitting up, this is usually going to be the wrong answer on the board exams. If it's a proprio-spinal myoclonus of sleep onset, that's very, very, very benign. You only want to work it up if it happens during the day. And then when we talk about this last one over here, I said that this is going to be the one that we call excessive fragmentary myoclonus. This one is going to be, once again, a PSG finding rather than a clinical diagnosis. These are small twitches of the mouth, toes, and fingers. No large movements can be seen. Once again, a major distractor for the pulmonary boards when we talk about sleep movement disorders. And with that being said, oh my God, we finished uh, like four hours of sleep. I hope this is really helpful for everyone. If you guys have any questions, let me know. But for the five minutes before you run the clinic, do you guys have any questions of anything we've done? Sorry about the baby in the background, but if, if that same question was on there with periodic limb movement disorder and the choices were pregabalin and ropinirole, given that pregabalin hasn't been approved for like from an FDA standpoint, what would be the right answer? That's an awesome question. You know what? I love that your baby's crying in the background. <laughs> it just brings back good memories, dude. But anyways, the answer is that for periodic limb disorder, nothing got FDA approved. And if you do want to treat it, we do use the medications uh, that we use for restless leg syndrome. And, you know, because you're not worried about augmentation with periodic limb movement disorder in itself, it's very reasonable to start off by checking a ferritin level. And if the ferritin is low or the transferrin saturation is low with the memorized values of 75 and 20 respectively, then I would treat with iron first. If we're talking about medications, many people would use the dopamine agonist first, but you definitely want to go over the side effect profile. And then if you know that's not tolerated, you can think about the gabapentinoids. But remember, gabapentinoids for your boards now, they definitely cause depression. They definitely cause a, a little more sleepiness. So that could be a hit and miss. The sleepiness might help out a little bit. You know, many people will start uh, Neurontin because there's so much room to titrate up and there's so much variability in the dosing, but you want to be careful with the press patients. So I would say simple things first, check the iron, meaning a ferritin level, tran uh, transferrin saturation, then maybe consider doing a dopamine agonist. Remember that uh, if there's renal dysfunction, do not use Pramipaxol that gets metabolized by the kidney. The other one gets metabolized by the liver. Thank you. You're very welcome. All right, everyone, if there's not any more questions, goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.